too? Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Hello, Lauren Marino. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the microphone today. Hi, Grace. Thank you. Great to see you. Lauren Marino, for our listeners, is a longtime writer, a great lover of books, and she's had a long career in the publishing industry. She's actually the founder of Gotham Books, where she published many award-winning and best-selling books, and she's currently the executive director of Hatchet Books. She has two novels that I really adore. One is called What Would Dolly Do? How to Be a Diamond in a Rhinestone World, which is based on the wit and wisdom of Dolly Parton. So I want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But the book I'm really excited to talk about now is your new book, Bookish Broads, Women Who Wrote Themselves into History. So welcome, Lauren. Thank you. It's good to see you. Great to see you as well. On this show, The Storyteller, I always like to get to the story behind the women who tell the stories. So in this case, you, and we'll talk about that as well. But I was captivated by your work because you actually said you want to tell the story behind the storytellers. So tell us about Bookish Broads and what you were trying to accomplish. Yes, I mean, it's it's this is the perfect place for us, for us, for me to have a conversation. And this seems like, because that's exactly what my goal was. I felt that female writers throughout history have not been respected, honored. They've had to overcome many, many obstacles that men did not have to overcome. And we're starting to catch up um, but you know, even with female artists, female musicians, female filmmakers, female writers, they tend to get lost to history or they are put down or disappear after their death because the, um, the artistic world or the cultural world is run by men and they eliminate the people that they don't want to hear from or that they don't, you know, they, they're, they're not interested in um, keeping going. So my goal was to write about female writers through history, look at all of the obstacles that they had to overcome, which were many, but to tell the stories behind the world's best female storytellers in the hopes that it would bring readers to their work, but also introduce new writers, writers who have been published, um, who are incredibly gifted and talented, who perhaps the world is not aware of, that should be aware of. And I wanted to also inspire female writers because it is um, being a writer is a very difficult profession or calling, and there's a lot of self-doubt, and there are a lot of challenges today. Um, so I thought if people could hear about the things that these women wrote about, what what drove them, the obstacles they overcame, how they triumphed, or how they disappeared, and why, uh, it would help motivate other writers who may, I, yeah. 
Well, I think you so accomplished your goal. And I felt in your writing, it was part advocacy, part mentoring, maybe a little bit of anger at how women have been treated over time as well. Yes. Well, I have, you know, I have a friend who read the book and she said, I, I really like, you know, this has this whole feminist angle. And I'm like, well, maybe it reads like a feminist angle to you. She's a Southern belle. So I said, but it's not that it's a feminist angle. It's really just the facts. It's just factual information. And yes, I try to have a sense of humor about it. So I don't know that it's it's anger or maybe I just use humor as a way to get information across. Um, you know, I talk about the... Uh, the, the medieval mystics and how the first women writers in the Western world, at least, were the nuns because the only way that you could learn to read and write and have intellectual freedom was by joining the convent because otherwise you would be married off in an arranged marriage while when you were 13 years old, you would not have a choice as to who your husband was. He was probably much older than you and you were having one kid after the other. So if you wanted to get it, if you wanted to escape that and have any kind of intellectual or creative life, you had to become a nun. And, and I loved that you pointed that out, having all those years of Catholic school myself, yeah. that it was really these women, and it almost sounded like some of them made that choice as opposed to they were the third daughter and, you know, the ugly stepsister and they couldn't get married. Right. And because I, you know, studied the lives of the saints as a very dutiful young girl, it yeah. was fun to see Teresa of Avila, who you uh, characterized as a disobedient gadabout. <laughs> she was one of my mother's favorite saints. So yeah. for me to think of her as a gadabout and a disobedient person, I love that story behind the story. Right. You also focused on, you may be the only other woman I know who actually appreciates Hildegard of Beggen. Yes, yes. Um, I remember probably 40 years ago, sitting in a car, listening to NPR, and they played this music from her Abbey um, mm. that she had written. And if you have not experienced that in all of your research, definitely go find it. I could not get out of the car. Huh. It wow. was, so yeah. I loved that I bumped into women from my past, yeah. but also some that I had not heard of. You did a lot of the usual suspects and I'd love you to talk about those, but you talk about the world's first novelist right. and Lady Murasaki. Tell yeah. us about her. Yes. Well, you know, when I was in school, I studied English literature and I was taught that Samuel Richardson was the world's first novelist, which is not the case by any stretch of the imagination. So Lady Murasaki was, um, grew up in 10th century Japan. And back then, Chinese was the spoken language and it was the men's language. And Japanese was the women's language and it was the colloquial language. Uh, her father was educating her brother and she would sit outside the door and basically learn whatever her brother was learning in secret. And so she learned how to speak Chinese and she learned how to write, which was unusual. So she started, um, 
in court back then, she, she ended up moving to the Empress's court and they used to have these kind of rap battles, but they were poetry battles. And they would sit there and it would be a contest of writing down a poem um, sort of as a, as a game and as an intellectual challenge. And she used to be able to beat everybody, including all of the men with her, with her poetry. And she started writing about life at court and ended up writing a 3000 page novel, really inventing the Amazing. novel. There's prose, there's poetry, there's intrigue. It's like this great, um, this long running soap opera with all of the, the sort of behind the scenes of the drama of what was going on at court. And it was really dealing with a lot of, instead of dealing with politics and matters of state, which is what were the important things to think about, she was writing about the gossip and the politics and love and marriage and concubines. She was writing from a female perspective. Which, and give us a time frame, excuse me, give us a time frame. Where are we in history? This was 10th century Japan. So, um, you know, her work in Japan is hugely celebrated. Um, I know the, the um, Metropolitan Museum of Art, a couple of years ago when I was researching and writing this book, did an entire exhibit on her because she's such an important cultural figure in Japan. Uh, and some of her original manuscripts were there. And up until today, where there are young artists who do anime, they write manga about her. Like she's she's such a cultural force. But in the Western world, in the United States, she's not as well known. And Tale of the Genji, um, it, it truly is a masterpiece. And um, you know, it, it goes. I think it goes through cycles of popularity and. Um, yeah, it's been, there's many translations of it into English, so it is accessible now. Well, you also pointed that out. I learned many things from reading your book, and I just love, that's one of the reasons I love doing this work, are for the things that I really learn. And you point out that accessibility to other cultures is limited to us even today. Certainly, you know, we have the breadth of what we would call English literature, but how difficult was that for you in your research? Because you do a very nice job of bringing in different cultures for us. I, you know, I couldn't write, I mean, for, for starters, I had a limited amount of space, you know, in, a, in book form. The publisher, and it's an illustrated book, it's four color, it has these beautiful illustrations in it. It is. Um, so you can't do an encyclopedia. You know, I wasn't trying to write a, an encyclopedic work. And because it's for color, they, you know, there's a certain amount. They said, you have, you, you have to do only 50 writers. And I said, oh, but there's so many more. And I wanted Such to a difficult task. Yeah, it was very hard. So I, I did go through the usual suspects. Um, you know, the, the, I went through my own personal favorites mm -hmm. and I realized I had so many and I didn't know how to cut them back. So that's why I started doing these different little sections like the medieval mystics or in order to put Jane Austen into context, I felt like we had to look at the development of the English novel and the and the women who um, preceded her, who sort of brought things on that way. Everyone loves Jane Austen, but they don't know about the, the some of the writers that came in the century before her that helped her be in a position to write that. You know, all of these women, all of their work 
sort of, I wrote it chronologically because the, the women, you have to depend on the work of the women who came before you. And you had to be educated and you had to be a reader. Um, so I, so that's, I wrote the sections, you know, I took, I did all my favorite children's writers where I write about Laura Ingalls Wilder and Frances Hodgson Burnett and uh, Margaret Wise Brown. Um, I, I put them like those little different sections in between in order to address more writers than I could in full essays. But it was all part of the historical context because, you know, the female writers completely altered children's literature. And there, there was a period of, the t of time when it completely changed from something very kind of almost punishing and didactic into something uh, where, with, with Margaret Wise Brown in particular, where she was one of the first writers, and she was also a children's book publisher and a very successful one, who was able to get into the minds of young children and engage with them um, in a, you know, in a, in a way that they were not being engaged with before, which to me, childhood literacy is so important because if you get a read, if you start reading young and fall in love with books from a young age, I think that's one of the best. Do anything. You can do anything. I was saying that to my daughter this morning. I said, you know, you need to really be reading more because you're struggling with history and it's because you're not reading enough. If you read enough novels, that basis of literacy and, and reading comprehension applies to every subject. So if you're having difficulty in history, it's probably because your writing or your reading isn't where it needs to be. But that's a whole nother aside. So that's a whole nother story. A whole nother story. So I, I tried to, I tried to, you know, after writing about the basics, I tried to dig into, and as I studied and researched these writers, I would hear about the writers that inspired them, which would then introduce me to writers that I wasn't necessarily familiar with who had disappeared from history, like Afra Ben. You know, Virginia Woolf introduced me to Afra Ben. Afra Ben was a restoration comedy playwright, but when she died, the, you know, the pamphlets, which were like the newspapers of the day, mm -hmm. badmouthed her and called her all sorts of names. And then she disappeared from history until Virginia Woolf started to write about her and kind of revived her. So, um, so, so a lot of it was like a, um, a treasure hunt on my part, which was you know, a lot of fun, but I also wanted to be representative, uh, but I had to be, I couldn't write about female writers from all around the world because then that's a completely different book. So I did focus on British and American or writers who may be from Hong Kong or mainland China or Brazil or Mexico, but I felt like like they their work has to be translated into English, or else I couldn't. They're I couldn't, not accessible, of course. They're not accessible to me to research them or to even read their work to understand them, or they're not being studied in American universities. You know, if their works aren't available, then we're not going to know about them. So one of the things I loved about your book is exactly that it is accessible. Obviously, you know, I don't know if it's been translated into other languages yet, but it will be. Um, I loved that you really wanted to focus and engage young readers as well. So while it's a great read for anyone, it's a wonderful read for young women, for university women. And I certainly hope it would be part of some women's literature course through high school and beyond. That's my hope. And I know you you have a background in education. That is my hope, 
um, is, is to try to reach the education market. Because like I said, so, I mean, things are changing now, but I do know that um, we're, you know, they're still reading in high school and in college courses. They're, you know, the majority of books that are on those syllabuses or the syllabi are, are written by men. So um, I, my hope is that if you uh, are intrigued or want to read more female writers, this is like a guide. It's almost like a travel guide where you can go in and find what, if you find a writer very interesting, then it will hopefully draw you to her work. And that's why I put in um, little, uh, like not required reading, but potential reading. I list a couple of their more yeah. popular works or more accessible works as a way for the reader to dive in and find something that they can connect to. I found that very helpful. I'd like you to talk a little bit, you almost, you began to allude to it about syllabi being written by men. You also had some interesting statistics in there that was a surprise to you when you started researching mm -hmm. about the number of books that are written by women, the number of books that are written by men and purchased. Tell us about that. So, you know, I've been in publishing for a long time. I, you know, I tend to focus on nonfiction in my career, but I've always been a fiction reader. I know that women buy 80% of books. That's and, an amazing statistic, yes. right? 80% of books are bought by women. Yeah, women are much bigger readers. And yet, even as of 20 years ago, or even in the past few years, romance novels or chick lit, it's, it's looked down upon. And yet we know that romance novels in the book industry are the best-selling category. Yes. So women are buying books, they're reading books. If books are about a woman's emotional life or a woman's internal life or about love or domestic matters, it is poo-pooed or looked down upon as not important. And yet for half of the population, those things are incredibly important. I found out that during... Um, it was really not until like in as of as recent as the 1970s that the New York Times book review did not review women's books. That there was one page that was called the women's page. And Amazing. that the New York Times would only review books by women on that one page and the rest of it, because what women had to say, what were what were on women's minds were just not considered important. And that's a that's a theme throughout history. Um, one of the things that really drove me to write this book was that I was reading an article about um, this research that had been done by libraries where they collected all of the data of the most circulated books in libraries around the world. And out of the, I went through the top 100 and only 14 of the top 100 books were written by women. I said, how can that be? How is that even possible? So then I went down the rabbit hole of researching that and I found this website called greatestbooks.org and it took information, data from 129 top literary book reviews, mm -hmm. literary journals, sort of the, the established, the literary establishment. And um, it was almost the exact same uh, information based on 129 of the top literary reviews uh, and publications in the world, only 14 out of the top 100 books 
were written by women. And it's it's the usual, it's Jane Eyre, you know, it's, it's the Brontes, it's Jane Austen, it's Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley wrote eight books. You know, they don't, people just think of her as Frankenstein and people right. see the movie and they don't realize what a masterpiece that work really is. And the fact that she wrote it when she was 17 years old and she had to publish it anonymously. And most people thought that her husband, Percy Shelley is the one who wrote it. I mean, so so there, it's just like, a, it, it's just sort of mind boggling to me that even now um, that the algorithms are still doing that today and telling us that women writers aren't as important. And yet I know that they are and, and incredible social change throughout history has come about because of what women write. And this is why I think your book is so particularly important because of the diversity, because of the accessibility. So I'm so glad you wrote it. Let's just spend a few minutes on Dolly Parton. Okay. Why, do why Dolly Parton? Well, I, I wrote a book called What Would Dolly Do? I was um, I was in a period in my life where I was going through that, you know, a lot of struggles. You know, there's sort of this age in your mid-40s, early 50s, like where, where all these things seem to happen back to back. And I was looking for some writing inspiration, but I was also looking for some life inspiration. And I... It, Dolly, honestly, I know this sounds crazy, but Dolly Parton had been a childhood love of mine when I grew up in Cincinnati. I just loved her music and I had kind of forgotten about her. And then all of a sudden she kept showing up everywhere I went, like on the cover of a magazine or I was at a Broadway show, I was at Kristen Chenoweth's one woman show and mm -hmm. she did this whole monologue about Dolly Parton and then bur like burst into one of Dolly's songs and I burst into tears and... I did like she just started showing up and then I had a dream about her where she said, Lauren, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. What would Dolly do? And I woke up at three in the morning and I, I, you know, I said, oh, my gosh, that's a book. What would Dolly do? And no one had written it. The more I researched her, the more inspired I became. And I know people love her, but I love that she is in her late 70s. Her career is stronger than ever. It's People have a, have a very specific perception of what she's all about. She is one of the great American songwriters. She's an incredible artist. She's also a very successful businesswoman. And she also runs the Imagination Library, which is one of the biggest literacy organizations in the world. And she gives away book, free books to children from the time they're born until they're five so that she's yes. creating this whole um community around the world of readers that may not have been readers because they couldn't afford to have books in their homes. So she she inspired me on so many levels. So I wrote a book about it. <laughs> and I think it's fabulous and I'm so glad you did. I like to time to wrap up our episodes with something maybe a little quirky about you that your audiences wouldn't know otherwise. So what's that quirky thing, Lauren? Oh, there's so many. I how can I pick one <laughs> under pressure like this? <laughs> um, I'm an old movie buff, and I would say a lot of the love I have for reading came from, well, Turner. Now it's Turner Classic Movies, but oh, when I, I love was, it every day. <laughs> yeah, when I was a little girl, I used to. Uh, back then, you had to get the TV guide on Sunday, and I would look for all of the old movies, and I would circle them, and I would set my alarm. Uh, sometimes those movies were only showing at two o'clock in the morning and I would set my alarm and I would sneak downstairs and watch old movies in the middle of the night while the rest of my family was sleeping. And 
some of those movies, when I was very young, introduced me to the novels that I, after seeing the movie, I would then read the novel. And so many of the women that are in this book, like, you know, Charlotte Bronte, Jane Austen, you know, seeing those movies made me read the books. And now here they, you know, Wonderful. it's all tied together. Well, you and I are both New Yorkers, so there used to be the million dollar movie and it would play over and over and over again. So it's fun to share the microphone with you. And I want to thank you for being such a great storyteller today. How can people find you, Lauren? You can go to laurenmarinobooks.com and the book is Bookish Broads, but there's a there's an excerpt from the book on book on, on laurenmarino.com. Uh, there are links to buy the books. There's some press and other interviews I've done and information about me. And there's also a way to email me if need be. That's great. Thanks for being a great storyteller. The Storytellers is a copyrighted episode by Grace Salmon and the Authors Around the World Global Network. And that concludes today's... That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon.